Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Mark Brackett is a professor in Yale University's Child Study Centre and founding director of the Yale Centre for Emotional Intelligence. His prescription for healthy children and their parents and teachers is a system called RULER, a high-impact and effective approach to understanding and mastering emotions so that they help rather than hinder our success and well-being. The RULER approach has already transformed the thousands of schools that have adopted it by reducing stress and burnout, improving school climate, and enhancing academic achievement. He also serves on the board of directors for the Collaborative for Academic, Social and Emotional Learning. Welcome, Professor Brackett. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good and I'm very... Well, I've been reading your book for the last few weeks, Permission to Feel, and I'm incredibly excited to be speaking to you. I appreciate that. Thank you. So Mark, five decades, I've read that, five decades of research has gone into this whole area of sort of emotional intelligence and emotional literacy. So tell us a little bit just about that title of the book, Permission to Feel. It's such an interesting and sort of catchy title, and it sort of helps us think about the kind of the history of what we know about emotional intelligence, how we've traditionally responded to it. Yeah, so... The title came to me through kind of multiple pathways. The first is quite personal, which is that, you know, I had a pretty rough childhood, as you know, from reading my book. And, you know, I felt truthfully as if my feelings life was robbed of me as a child, that I had to suppress my feelings, I had to eat my feelings, I had to, you know, scream my feelings, but there was no real place to go to unpack those feelings. And so I don't think I had permission to feel. And then the second more kind of like contemporary was I was giving a speech in one of the most challenging school districts in the state of Connecticut where I live. And I was warned, you know, this district is in bad shape and everybody's going to be upset and angry. And there's like lots of stuff going on there. And the first day at lunch, I approached one of the principals of one of the 40 or 50 schools in this district. And he just was not into it. You know, he's like, you know, eh, you know, the lunch looks pretty good. And so I decided to make him my project. And at the end of the two days of intense training for these district level leaders, I just approached him and I said, you know, I'm just curious, you know, what did you think about these two days talking about feelings and strategies? And he stood up in front of his hundred peers and he started crying and he said, thank you for giving me permission to feel. And I was like, that was a moment in my career where I realized like, how many people, everybody has a different story. You know, mine sadly involves abuse and and bullying and neglect, but everybody has a story. And most of these stories are not ones where emotions were at the center of them, at least talking about feelings. And so the last thing I'll just say about this is that I have felt for the last 25 years of my career that we're so focused on like the outward expression 
of emotional intelligence, which people think of as charisma and like being a successful leader or manager. And I think that's a piece of it. But the real piece of it is giving ourselves and everyone permission to feel. One of the first things I began to reflect on reading your book, and it might be just my own sort of cultural background, you know, being Irish, but sometimes in my childhood, if you'd said, oh, I'm upset or I'm sad or I feel, you know, parents and sort of with almost humor would say, oh, come on now, catch yourself on. That's a great Belfast phrase. Just pull yourself up, you know. And I think often parents, and I myself included, can feel very anxious, very upset to hear when their child discloses that they are feeling vulnerable, that they they feel a particular way. And we have an almost visceral reaction, an allergy to it. We want to be great parents, but we feel very anxious hearing that our child is potentially what we would term unhappy because we don't have the skill set to know how to respond in those moments following that. I couldn't agree more. And I just think this comes from a history, I'm not going to say of the world, but of modern society, that we have somehow or another put feelings into the category of dysregulated. When you have feelings, it's emotional, which means out of control. And I think that's problematic because it automatically puts them in you know, a category of like, that's not good, you should not be there, and figure it out yourself. And we know now from the research you know, that people have not been able to figure it out for themselves. You know, The anxiety and depression and other mental health challenges that our nation here in the United States, and I know in the UK and elsewhere, is experiencing, is it's actually not treatable at this point. You know, we've gotten to the point where I think we've just accepted the fact that everyone's going to have an anxiety disorder, which is heartbreaking to me because as someone who has lived with anxiety for many, many years, it's not a great place to be all the time. And there are ways out of it if we can just create a society that is willing to be prevention focused and be comfortable talking about feelings. I think it's very important to not sort of make it too complex in some ways, because for example, one of the things that I've picked up from your book which we've tried to practice at home is kind of just a gentle validation of children's feelings before you do anything else. And most parents aren't clinical psychologists. They don't know what that means. And I've been teaching my husband who works in finance. He doesn't know any of this stuff. And he, I've been watching him relearn how to ask a good question. Mm -hmm. So you don't jump into problem solve, but you validate, you listen, you say, I can see you're feeling like that or giving what you talk about in the book, the importance of that expressive vocabulary. What is the word that might attach to this feeling? So I want to talk about the promotion of emotional literacy at home before we go on and talk about your lovely ruler approach and what you're doing in school. So let's just talk about what might be optimal in family life that perhaps has eluded us for generations. Well, I think the first is that we the adults who are raising kids and teaching them, you know, have to be the best possible role models. And I think that people confuse things like love and compassion with teaching skills. You know, my parents loved me. You know, they really did. They were not skilled at all in terms of dealing with their own feelings or dealing with my feelings. And I say that with the most objective lens, although I did experience it. And so You know, my father just had a lot of anger that he didn't know how to deal with. And 
my mother had a tremendous amount of anxiety that she didn't know how to deal with. And so I watched them, you know, my father just, you know, yell and scream and take out his belt and, you know, hit us when he couldn't deal with his feelings. And I, my mother did very similar things, although she was more like locking herself in the room and, you know, having a nervous breakdown type. And, you know, I know they did the best they could, but it could have been better in terms of supporting me in my healthy emotional development, especially during my times of crisis, right? When you're being bullied and abused, it's not that helpful for a parent to say things like, I can't handle this. I can't handle this. Or another parent saying, you got to toughen up. You got to toughen up. And so my hope, right, is that, you know, it's funny. I just got off a series of presentations for families. And I think everybody comes to the thing, to my presentation, thinking Mark's going to teach me strategies on how to raise an emotionally intelligent child. And they leave saying, oh, shoot, I got a lot of work to do on myself. Absolutely. I think the work is in the adults being role models. And what that looks like is adults being comfortable sharing their feelings, not thinking that a dad who is worried about something at work is a weak person, but a real person who has concerns about stuff that's going on at work. And I can talk about it. And it's affecting my thinking and my judgment as a father anyway. So I might as well be transparent with my kid when I get home from work, you know, that daddy's preoccupied. He had something happen at work that wasn't as expected, and he's trying to figure out a solution to it. And I may look a little off tonight, honey, but it's not because of you. It's because I'm trying to deal with this thing. And I mean, that alone, I think, can do wonders. Equally, you know, saying, do you know what? I'm, I feel anxious. I don't know why I'm feeling anxious, but I'm going to puzzle it out. I'm going to think about it. Exactly. Reflect on it. Or am I, I, I love the idea. I'd love to hear what you think of families having coping menus so on our fridge, we have lots of options of things that could make us feel better that we've collated over the years. And you might just nudge each other to, sure. to go back and use that kind of. So it's about everyone in the family. It's not about, as you say, raising children to be. It's about what are we modeling the entire time and, and practicing it ourselves, which is it's so it's hard. So it takes practice. So you've mentioned things like telling boys to man up or children having to mask emotion. Why is it, and is it the same in the U.S. as it is here, that boys have traditionally been told to man up, that this vulnerability is so easily squashed, not just in family life, but it can be squashed at the side of the, the football pitch or the soccer pitch or with coaches? You know, what is it that we're so afraid of when it comes to boys being vulnerable or expressing that emotion? Yeah, I think this is, you know, you're making me think about kind of, survival of the fittest here. And in many ways, we have deemed people who express emotions, especially ones that we have deemed as being weak, like anxiety and fear, like that's not survival of the fittest. That's that's the person who's going to get eaten alive, you know, by their peers or by, you know, the bully. When I think the opposite is actually true. People want to be around people who create a positive emotional climate. I'm just going to say that people want to be around people who are empathic, compassionate, supportive, caring, non-judgmental. I've done all the research in the world on this, and that is what most people say they want to be around. Nobody wants to be around the harsh, judgmental, unsupportive, unempathic person. But yet, 
we have decided as a society that especially men who express these traits, you know, they're weak because, you know, they're not going to stand up for their rights or they're not going to fight to support their family or whatever that, you know, thinking is when it's just not true. I like to model as an adult leader that you can be vulnerable and strong and that vulnerability actually is a strength. You know, I'm, I'm objectively pretty successful. You know, I'm a full professor, you know, I have a beautiful center that I have the privilege of leading, but I'm also someone who is very emotionally volatile and I could try to hide that from my team, but it's going to show up someplace. I can guarantee you that. And so why not just be transparent? And then people can see me like, wow, you can be a successful professor and you can be someone who has a lot of strong emotions, who's working towards strategies to help live a healthier life. One of the things you're making me reflect on is how isolating it is when you don't have permission to feel. You can feel it when you even talk. I can feel what it must have felt like. It's like a brick wall when people aren't interested in how you feel. And it's so devastating. And the danger with children is they won't repeat the plea. They won't come back to you because they don't trust. The trust is gone when they express vulnerability that gets shut down. And that's really worrying, isn't it? Well, because your unexpressed emotions have to go somewhere. And so, you know, for me, they went into crawling up in a ball in my bedroom crying. For me, it went into an eating disorder as an adolescent. For me, it went into acting out and just getting really aggressive and mean without even knowing what the heck was going on. And so they have to go somewhere. For other people, it's repression. For some other people, it's alcohol. For other people, it's, you know, abusive drugs or even sex. And so you're not going to have well-being, right, unless you learn strategies to deal with your feelings. And one of the things that comes across so strongly in your book is that this is about everything. It's not just about learning. It's not just about relationships. It's about creativity. It's about, you know, it's an investment, the sort of emotional literacy in their entire future and maybe even in the future of the world, how we express ourselves, how we believe in ourselves, how we communicate with one another, how we recognize that volatility in ourselves, and how we manage and regulate it. Couldn't agree more. You know, because success is a weird concept. I know we like to use that term a lot, but how many times have we met someone or, or, or revered someone like a famous actor or a CEO, you know, who makes a zillion dollars a year, but, you know, they are chronically unhappy or their children don't respect them or they are living you know, secretly with, you know, clinical anxiety or depression and are are embarrassed about that. And so my perspective on this is that true success is actually learning how to use your emotions wisely to achieve your personal goals and well-being. And you talk us through, so for those of you who've never heard of this, Mark has a very famous approach called the ruler approach which is wonderfully sort of strategic in terms of setting out. We're going to go through each one of them. And it's something that, you know, we can all learn from when you read the book, but equally it can be applied in schools. So we're going to talk through that. But then I love the the, the sort of the latter part of the book that talks about the sort of using all of that and putting it into practice. But let's go, right. go back to the beginning of the ruler approach, Mark, if you don't mind talking us through it. 
Well, before we even get to ruler, I think it's important to just mention, you know, that in the model that I've worked on, you know, the first step is permission to feel, right? The first pass is that we have to shift our mindsets about feelings, that emotions are useful, they're valuable, they should be approached, not avoided. The second is that there's like a mindset around that. And I call it being an emotion scientist versus an emotion judge. And so the emotion scientist is open, curious, and reflective. The emotion judge is closed, critical, judgmental. The emotion scientist wants to learn. The emotion judge says, I know the answers. And so that's an important piece because, you know, when we fail, you know, because with permission to feel comes permission to fail. I think the pandemic taught us all that, oh, this is hard, you know, living in quarantine, you know, having relatives stay with you that you didn't expect them to be with you and, (laughs) you know, not working in a traditional way, not having strategies, you know, like I'm a, I like to go to a yoga class pretty much three or four days a week. There was no yoga studios open during the pandemic. So it's like, what do I do now? I learned every single park in my hometown. And so we've got to have a mindset of that growth mindset, you know, borrowing from Carol Dweck's work, you know, that if I fail, it's a learning moment as an opportunity to grow. And then we can start developing the ruler skills. And so ruler is an acronym for the five skills of emotional intelligence. Importantly, I'm a student of the two founders of the theory of emotional intelligence. Their names are Jack Mayer and Peter Salovey. And so Ruler is just uh, an adaptation of a theoretical model that they created. And Ruler stands for recognizing emotions in oneself and other. So how am I feeling? How are you feeling? And that demands a certain curiosity, which you've just alluded to. A lot of curiosity and a lot of humility, because we overestimate how skilled we are at reading people. You know, everybody has a different kind of baseline facial expression. We're taught also because of all of the rules in society to mask our feelings, as we said earlier. And so what happens is that, you know, you think someone looks curious when they're upset or they look upset when they're curious, but then our behavior changes towards people based on how they show their feelings on their face and in their body. So we've got to be curious explorers as opposed to the critical judges again. Then the you of ruler is understanding of emotion. This is a big one because we do need a universal understanding. We need common definitions of concepts. So for example, anger is about injustice and disappointment is about unmet expectations. Now, why that's important is that if I'm upset about something and I say, I hate this and I'm angry, but it's really not because of an injustice, it's because of an unmet expectation, the whole whole way we would strategize about it is different. And so that's, it's super important. And I think what's important here is understanding that personality and culture all play into, and importantly, lived experience. So I'm Jewish and I share that only because it's part of my identity, but it's also right now, there is a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in our society that is very hurtful to me and, and scary, especially I'm a public speaker and I, I tend to not be afraid of sharing my identity. And so my point of sharing that is not anything other than the things that might make me feel fear or anxiety or stress in terms of my identity may not be relatable to other people because they don't share that identity. And the goal is not to say, well, why would you get angry about that? Or why would you be disappointed about that? The goal of this work is to 
have perspective. And so, wow, it's important for me to know that about you, Kathy, you know, given who you are and what your experiences were growing up, I want to respect the fact that when I speak a certain way, it makes you feel nervous. Or when I treat you a certain way, that makes you feel angry because of your experience. And so it's really, I'm saying, what I'm saying is that we have common definitions, but understand that we each have unique experiences with these feelings. And being sensitive to those cultural differences as well and caring about what your perspective might be, not judging it again. Exactly. I mean, I'm I'm a white male. And so how much can I relate to the feelings of a black male in society? You know, I have plenty of friends and colleagues, you know, who are people of color, but I don't live their life. I'm not experiencing it through their eyes, through their ears. And so if I hear about a behavior that I'm engaging in or someone else is engaging in that's causing them to feel discomfort or whatever it is, my goal is to understand it better, not to judge it. Yeah, not to overreact to it. It's to to listen, to be curious again. Yeah, except the challenge is that we we tend to want to attribute the way we feel about things to everybody else. Yeah. It's like when you go to the movies. If you love a movie and someone else doesn't like it, all you do is try to convince them why the movie <laughs> is great. Right? And so it's like, no, let me have my own opinion of the movie. Thank you very much. And then there's the labeling emotions, having the words to describe feelings, being precise. You know, is it anger or is it annoyance or is it being livid? Is it down or disappointed or devastated or hopeless? Is it happy, excited, elated or jubilant? Getting really precise. This is a good point to interject and ask, what's the difference between a feeling and an emotion? Because it can feel terribly naughty and unclear. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, scientists spend endless amounts of hours debating this kind of stuff. And I think for the most part, we want to think of emotions and feelings as as experiences. You know, we have feelings, you know, about people. We have feelings about going places. We have feelings about our emotions, right? I don't like that feeling of anger that I'm having. Emotions are the most clearly defined, I think, in terms of their typically automatic responses to shifts in our environment, meaning the car comes in front of you or or the dog is growling at you or you know, someone surprises you with a gift and all of a sudden, you know, your brain responds to that with surprise or fear. And we tend to do things when we have feelings, right? We tend to fight or flight or approach if it's a positive emotion. And so that's the language of emotion. So R-U-L, recognize, understand, label. And by the way, that's about self and other. And so it's self-awareness and social awareness. And then we got the E and the R, expressing emotion, regulating emotion. So am I comfortable expressing my emotions with you, with other people? Do I feel safe? Do I have trust? Do I even know how to express my emotions? Understanding that there are personality factors that drive this. So for example, because I do a lot of public speaking, people think of me as very outgoing. I'm actually quite shy. And so I don't like to be the life of the party. I don't, I'm not someone who wants to be in an environment where that's very stimulating. I actually am like, I like quiet coffee shops, small wine bars, you know, small gatherings. I find myself quite overwhelmed in big parties. Like I'm not really one to approach people. And so that's going to impact how I express myself. My family background, you know, did I grow up in a family where it's like, keep your feelings to yourself. 
you know, the norms that I grew up with, that's going to impact my belief system in terms of how I express. And then there are larger, larger cultural, you know, talking about race, as I did a moment ago. The question is, do people of all different racial and ethnic backgrounds in whatever society they're in feel like they can actually be their true selves? And I think the answer, at least in the country that I live in, is no, that we have racism, we have prejudice and other stigmas. And that could be from the color of your skin to your mental health condition. We don't necessarily feel safe expressing our true feelings because of that fear of being judged or ridiculed or or harmed. And so I, I think that's an important piece, especially because what it does, it reminds us that teaching ruler, it's not an individual's job to figure it out for themselves. You know, we can't take someone who has been marginalized and say, you know, express yourself. That's really not going to work very well. I think what we have to do is create conditions in homes and schools and workplaces where people feel like they can be their true self, which means we need parents and educators and leaders who understand why we have to give people permission to feel. And this is about systemic change. It's not about doing something one day in a classroom either. That's everyone's job to help. Well, it's general conditions in society to feel safe, but equally feeling safe at home, feeling safe at school. It's all about the conditions in which these children are um, being brought up and thriving. Correct. And if we don't create, you know, a lot of people say, well, if I do all this work in school, but it, you know, it gets, you know, goes in reverse when kids go home. Is that, is is it not worth it? And I'm like, no, it's definitely worth it. I, unfortunately, you know, my parents didn't change until I got much older. But I was glad to have an uncle who was my uncle Marvin, who gave me the permission to feel to have someone to talk to. And that one adult really did make a difference in my life. And so I think that we oftentimes think unless everything in the world is changing at once, you know, we're not going to make good change. But I I disagree with that. I think that I always say be the first, just be the first, be the first to offer support. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so the fifth part of ruler regulating. Now, that's a term that we're hearing a lot more about in in modern times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because people can't do it, including myself. I've been really thinking a lot about this because I've studied these strategies, I've taught these strategies, and it's been hard to implement them. Some of it's because I don't get enough sleep. Some of it is because there's too much what's called allostatic load. You know, there's too many things, you know, it's like return to work and all the policies around how many days a week do you go into work? And then there's political division, there's wars, there's economic challenges. It's like never stops. And I think that we have to help each other with these strategies. And this is why it's not helpful for like, you know, one child or one adult to learn them and practice them by themselves. Well, I mean, it can be a little helpful, of course, but it's going to be a lot better if everybody's practicing the strategies. But people don't even know the strategies. People have not really learned evidence-based approaches to moving away from self-criticism and moving towards self-compassion or blaming and moving that to reframing or even how the things that we eat and the amount of sleep we get and the amount of physical activity we get directly influence, you know, how we regulate. 
Absolutely. And those are things even children intuitively know. I mean, um, one of the things you talk about in the book, cognitive reframing. Very recently, my little son came out of school and he was very disappointed that he'd been dumped from the A team and placed in the B team. Uh And then after a couple of moments, he said, wait a minute, I'm going to be the best in the B team. Uh They're going to want to pass me the ball. (laughs) So children can have those kind of resilient thinking habits and we can nurture more of that thinking. You do describe very clear cut, you know, mindfulness we're familiar with, those breathing exercises, forward looking, looking forward to things, distracting ourselves, attention shifting, that cognitive reframing and this beautiful concept of the meta moment, which I'd love you to explain a little bit more. The meta moment. Yeah. Well, the meta moment is a tool that I co-created with a colleague of mine whose name is Robin. And, you know, it's interesting. We came at it from two different lenses. I was coming at it from a a researcher's lens of like, there's all this research, but like nobody's using it. Nobody's motivated, you know? And then she was coming at it from a clinical lens, having a private practice treating patients. And she's like, I'm teaching them all the strategies, but they're not using them. And so we thought, well, there's a missing link. And one of those missing links is motivation. The people, you have to want to regulate. And so the meta moment is a four-step process that starts with being aware of the things that activate you. And I have to say, like, it's amazing, you know, how, for myself even, how easily I'm activated. I was activated last night in my home. I was, you know, my response was not great. I didn't take a meta moment. And I I sometimes wonder, like, Mark, why didn't you use the strategy? And so much of it is about control and being indignant and wanting to, like, prove, you know, that you know, my way is the right way, all this stuff. And so being aware of what activates you. For me, for example, in my role as a professor, entitlement is a big trigger, you know, because I grew up with very humble roots. Neither one of my parents had a college education. My father was um, an air conditioning repairman. And so I didn't have a father with a big career, you know, who made a lot of money. And we struggled many times in my childhood. And so when I have students who are like, you know, Professor Brackett, I've got a question, but I'm not really sure you know the answer. I'm like, really? Really? Any self-awareness would be appreciated. And it's rare that I get that, but it's one of those, you know, most of my students are amazing. But a few of them can really activate me. And I have to really check in with myself. Mark, take a deep breath. Don't say it, Mark. Don't say it, Mark. That's the pause button. And then I can say to myself, how would the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence handle this? Because Mark wants to say something not so kind. <laughs> like, Mark, how would you know the Yoda of emotional intelligence deal with it? And it really does help to, to pause and activate that particular mindset. It's like our childhood, Mark, childhood, Kathy, can want to do something. And you're suggesting just giving ourselves a moment to reflect. And it brings us back to that adult space where we might be a little bit more knowledgeable and wise. Well, the, right, the child, right, you know, what we, we've accumulated knowledge through our development by observing people. And we've made those our habits, right? And so the habit is, you don't realize it, but you have that extra bowl of ice cream. The habit is, you know, you, you know, slam the door. The habit is you say, go blank yourself. Those are quick automatic reactions to stimuli. And so what I'm saying, and what Rob and I are saying in the meta moment is, wait a minute, that's, 
typically, you know, slamming the door, yelling, screaming, having the extra alcoholic beverage, you know, ripping someone to shreds, right, is not going to, you know, lead to the best outcomes for your own health and wellness, for your relationships, for your future. And so take a minute, a moment, take a breath, pause, think about your best self and respond through that lens. And it's amazing how, you know, much effort has to go into that. It's like so hard to say, Mark, don't rep this person. It's so easy for me to say you blank, blank, and you blank, blank, and you entitled blank, blank. Like it can come out like 500 miles an hour. But for me to say, to me, pause and actually figure out a way to give someone constructive feedback about how they treated me, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of humility and a lot of self-awareness and a lot of courage sometimes. It does, but I don't know. I mean, I've been with my partner for 28 years. And as much as I feel like we've grown together and we love each other, we still get on each other's nerves all the time. (laughs) And half the time, I know it's because I didn't take them at a moment. You know, it's because I had to like get in dig in and make that little ringer, that zinger, you know? And it's like, really, like, how does that help us have a common nervous system? How does that help us look in each other's eyes with that love and appreciation? No, it creates tension. It creates rumination about like, you know, it creates discontentment, if that's even a word. And as parents, my aspiration for my two boys is that they end up in relationships where they are able to take them at a moment and be empathetic and kind and able to realize their own sort of potential in a relationship through some of the strategies you're describing. Yeah. I just think that we, we need to start building this muscle early in life. And if we do so, our automatic response is going to be one where we pause to problem solve and reflect and strategize to make the world a better place, as opposed to one that's just getting our way or being mean and hurtful. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So I think that, again, as you sort of reiterate in the book, this is about everything. It's not just about sort of helping children navigate their emotions. This is about their future proofing them. And and you've described it. It does take hard work, but at the same time, it's kind of fun to implement because it's sort of intellectually interesting to think, to challenge ourselves in that way as well. There's a challenge there. And I actually think of it as a creative process. I've been very fortunate. The last two weeks I've been on the road visiting schools that use Ruler, but they were, were these are particular schools that have been using Ruler for at least eight years. And I have to tell you, it has been unbelievably rewarding to see and meet children who have been thinking about this stuff and being taught it for so many years. One of my favorite lines was from a little girl who's in seventh grade and she had been to school for six years. And she said, I was sharing with her how um, I didn't have anybody to talk to about my feelings when I was young. And she looked at me and she goes, you know, that's awful. I can't think of a day in the last six years where someone in my school didn't ask me how I was feeling. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And, you know, I was interviewing children about how they regulate and how they build upon each other and the creativity that they have in discovering fun strategies. Like one girl, so when I get angry, you know, because I'm a piano player, I just go into the piano and I just channel my anger into that piano. Wow. Another kid said, I journal, then I read what I wrote, 
And I think, is this really worth having the conversation about? Or is it just really, you know, is it not that big of a deal? And if it's not that big of a deal, I just rip it up and move on. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Can I ask you about something that I saw on Instagram, if you don't mind? You were vis- visiting a school and this wonderful head teacher, I tried to take a picture of it and I couldn't find his name again. He had something that I thought was totally inspired, which is probably one of your approaches, but he had a hoop you know, like a basketball hoop and children were, I think I understood it correctly that you were throwing whatever emotional emotion into whatever particular hoop so that the teacher could see who was in the yellow or the blue. Can you just sort of, because I'm desperately interested in that. I think it's fantastic if you could just explain what was going on there. So that was actually in a school that serves children with learning differences and special needs. And they have a whole kind of ruler corner where they have strategies and buckets for the yellow strategies, the blue strategies, the green strategies, the mood meter, which by the way, I just have to do a special plug for our new app. Ooh. It's a free app that was built in collaboration with the founder of Pinterest. Uh, his name is Ben Silberman. So Ben and I, along with our respective teams, built a new app. It's called How We Feel, and it's available on iOS as of today. It'll be on Android within the next two months. And it is really cool. So it takes parts of my book and makes it into an app so you can process and, and you know play with it. And it gives you 144 words and definitions and 36 research-based strategies to help you regulate. So everybody, how we feel, check it out. Now, with that said, going back to your question, is it, you know, they're using sensory motor skills and, and making this work playful. And so... The kids come in the morning, they plop what, what quadrant the moon meter and then they take a ball in that color and then they play basketball and they they kind of like play with it and like, you know, I'm in the yellow, I'm in the blue. But it just makes it fun and interactive and helps them think about what they might need in that moment to regulate. So yeah, it's fun. It was fantastic. So uh, I know we're a bit short of time now, but I just just a couple of questions from teachers that I've spoken to in terms of you just mentioned perhaps neurodiverse students, some of whom may struggle with reading emotions or navigating those sort of emotions, you know, the skills required for those sorts of interactions. So some schools have asked me about your best advice about the applicability of what's in your book to neurodiverse students, if you don't mind. Of course. You know, we've had a lot of experience working in schools, you know, with children who have a range of strengths and challenges from emotional challenges, you know, really kind of difficult, difficult times, you know, in terms of regulation to children with autism, to children with other types of learning challenges, whether it be dyslexia or, or children who can't speak. And I think what makes Ruler special is that it's not a canned model. It's an approach to social and emotional learning. So that means that the mood meter, you know, you can help children go from the complexity to just the colors of the mood meter, the yellow, red, blue, and green. You could help children, you know, build their vocabulary from simple to understand words to more complex words. In a school where there were children who couldn't speak, they used technology where children could drag their photo into the quadrant and then the technology would speak wow. the word. So they That's could all amazing. We have braille mood meters. So people who are not sighted can actually um, check in on the mood meter and use the tool. If you're colorblind, you know, the colors are not as important as the dimensions of pleasantness and energy. So it's about, you know, how much pleasantness, how little pleasantness. And so really 
we have been blessed that this is very adaptive to children with lots of different, you know, learning differences. And we actually have our director of research, her name is Chris Cipriano, has gotten many grants to do studies to help us figure out ways to make all of our tools of Brillo more accessible. And so we're in continuous kind of learning and growing mode. We have a very high growth mindset around Ruler in terms of that we are always in curious scientist mode and not in the knower mode. Last question. Teachers can presumably also, any of us, we could have a mood meter in our own homes. We could have teachers using it in the staff room. They should be. As a matter of fact, Ruler is model when a school adopts Ruler, which by the way, people can just go to the Ruler website, which is rulerapproach.org or to my personal website, which is just markbracket.com to learn more. Our model of implementing Ruler is always adults first. And I learned that the hard way. Um, And I learned it, by the way, going to the UK in many ways, because I remember I went to one school in London and this one teacher said, my job is not to talk to my students about my feelings. And then she ran out of the room. I was like, yikes, this is going to be a fun day. You know, I've seen, I've seen it all. And I realized that like, why would I even want that particular educator to be implementing ruler? Yikes, that's going to do damage. And so instead, let's spend a year working with the adult faculty and staff on understanding these core principles and, you know, using the mood meter for your own personal development. And then what I find is that people are super excited to implement it in their classrooms because they're like, this is really beneficial. I have more vocabulary. I have better strategies. I want my students to learn this. And so adult development before child development is our model. Absolutely. Ours too are tooled up. And the app that you've described, sorry, teacher well-being is obviously, we don't have time to talk about that today, but there are obvious benefits to even just reading your book, I think, for teachers for their own well-being, which is obviously very often, very sadly, sort of not talked about or valued as much as pupil well-being. Correct. And we're going to do that study that I have, our team is so overwhelmed right now, but We've got to work on that. I'm going to make sure that we can get that to you so that we can do the research with your followers. Thank you. It's so We've been doing endless amounts of research on teacher well-being, and we know that the predominant feelings are anxiety and stress and overwhelm, and they want to be more excited and appreciated and content and tranquil and peaceful. And so I think Ruler can be a technique right, to help people figure out what they need to go from tired, stressed, and anxious to content, calm, and appreciated. Absolutely. And Mark, last question, the app, how relevant is it for each age group? Is there any sort of restriction? Can children use it? I know I'm going to be asked these questions. This is mostly for adults. So high school students, I would say secondary or high school students and adults. Eventually we'll have one for children, but this is really for adults. We have diverse actors who've recorded the strategies. We put 36 emotion regulation strategies into this app with scripts and videos to teach you the strategy that you can then apply to yourself. And so it's good stuff. I can't wait to tell everyone about it. It sounds fantastic. No, we're really excited about it. You know, and I think what's really nice about it is that with generous donations, we're making it available for free forever. 
Wow. Amazing. It's yeah. fantastic. Well, listen, I know, you know, you're a very busy man and we're very appreciative thank to you. have you with us yeah. today. So thank you for all the work that you do and for telling your story and inspiring us and writing an amazing book, which I dip into very, very regularly. And I really enjoy it. And I, I've pictured Uncle Marvin in my head. Yeah. And often I think about how significant he was for you. And I hope any adult listening can recognize, you know, how powerful they can be in children's lives so thank you so much for everything that you do and thank you for talking to me today and thank you for inviting me bye-bye cheers this get a grip podcast is brought to you by tooled up education the home of evidence-based tips on parenting family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in tooled up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the tooled up site.